Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for standing in and doing that reading for us. Great to, uh, to hear that and great to have uh, this new series unfolding with us today. If you're new, welcome, good to have you here. We're going to spend this term looking at an overview of the whole of the Old Testament. Easy, right? Um, we've got a little pictorial guide like this that we would love for you to grab. There should still be some on the table at the back. And basically, this will be our guide. Uh, you can see these pictures on the bottom of our Bible readings. I don't know if you've noticed them there before, but they're always there at the bottom of the Bible readings. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Old Testament part here. Love you to have one of those. And uh, you can grab one if you haven't already got one at the end of the service. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us because today... There's lots to do, so I'm going to pray that you buckle up and get ready. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and active, and thank you for the beautiful way it speaks of the world around us. Help us to understand you because your Holy Spirit reveals us to you, uh, reveals you to us um, in your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you might think to yourself, good gracious me, uh, why this Old Testament series? Can't we do all the good stuff? Why do we have to have all the Old Testament stuff? Isn't it going to be a really stuffy term? All that sort of thing. Well, here's my answer. My answer is, um, does anyone know what this is a poster for? Avengers Endgame. Is that right? I see that hand at the back. Good on you, mate. Um, Avengers Endgame. This is, a, this is a movie that's come out. Um, it's a long movie. Anyone know how long it is? More than three hours, three hours and 20 minutes. It comes after a whole bunch of other movies. If these people on the screen here are unfamiliar to you, probably you've saved a lot of your life, okay? But, but here's the thing, here's the thing. They have all got a backstory, and almost every one of them has their own movie. In fact, does anyone know how many movies there are? 20? That's helpful for me, because that's what I said too, so that's great. Um, okay, so there are 22 of these movies. Now, what I've been told is... You need to go and watch all of them in order to be ready for this end game, this climax point at the end of these stories. So I've had friends who've been telling me, now I've been studiously watching all the movies to get ready. Has anyone been doing this? Okay, you're too ashamed to put your hands up, but some of you have. Okay, very good. I know particularly over here from Cheslon, you guys would have been doing that a lot. So uh, that's, uh, that's fair enough. Um, here's the thing. People have told me, I think it's something like 48 hours, it might be 52 hours to watch all of the 22 movies to get ready, okay? Now, here's the extraordinary thing. Why do it? You do it so that when you get to the end game, it's this amazing story where you can see all the threads picked up. Here's what I'd like to say to you. That's your Old Testament. Right? When you get to Jesus, Jesus is God's end game. When you get to Jesus, if you don't know all the characters, if you don't know the plot lines, when you get to Jesus, you simply won't be able to appreciate it for what it is. And might I say that if you've spent 48 hours watching 22 movies, how much time have you spent with your Old Testament recently? Very good. I know it'll be about the same. Okay, so here's the thing. I want to tell you that the Old Testament will reward our effort. It'll be worth it for at least four reasons. What I want you to see is that there is a big picture in the Bible. The Bible goes from creation to new creation. In Genesis 1, we see the creation of the world. In Revelation 22, we see the new creation of the world. The big picture of the Bible is laid out for us. I want to see the unity of the Bible. 
that in the Old Testament, we see all the preparation for the Messiah, the King of Israel to come. And then in the New, we see that that Messiah is Jesus. There's a unity in the Testaments. I want you to see the units of the Testaments. There are different types of writing in the Old Testament. Did you know this? So there is the law. There is the the narrative history of Israel. There is the wisdom and the songs of Israel in the writings. And then there's prophecy that tells us about what is going to come. There are different types of writing. And I want you to learn about the units in the Old Testament. And I also want to show you the flow. I've picked these pictures so that they give you an overview of the Old Testament. And I want you to see how we move from one to the next one. I want you to get a sense of how the whole of the Old Testament holds together. Well, that's pretty ambitious, isn't it? We should be able to knock that off in a term, I'm sure. How do we make sense of the story? You, you might have said, look, I, I believe in the, in the Bible, and you might even um, say something radical these days about morality. And if you were to say something about morality in today's world, what someone will say is, yeah, but do you eat prawns? Has anyone had this moment happen? Where, where they pick a bit of the Old Testament and they say to you, ha, huh, do you keep that? You don't keep that? Well, clearly you don't believe your Bible, you're a hypocrite. No one's had this happen. Anyone seen this happen? Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. What I want to show you is that's not a good way to handle the Bible. There is a way to handle the Bible that will make sense of it, that will give it back to you as a Christian so you can use it rightly. There's three big words, and I'm going to explain what they mean, that will help us. How do we understand the Bible and apply it? The first thing we need to do is exegesis. Now, it's got the binoculars because it'll explain what we do. What we need to do is we need to look closely at the text itself and ask, what does the text say? The second thing that we need to do is a thing called hermeneutics, where we do some thinking. We need to work out what does it mean. And I've got some questions to help us think about that. Thirdly, we need to do this thing called homiletics. Don't worry about that. It means, what must I do? Should I not eat prawns? I hope you've heard the answer to that is you're fine. Please enjoy them. And God's got lots to say to us. What what, what sort of questions can we use with this hermeneutics idea? Let me show you some. So first of all, we want to ask, as we're trying to work out, we're trying to wrestle, we see, what did it say? The next thing we have to do is we have to understand what does it mean. In order to understand what it means, we need to think about what kind of writing is it. So if God says that he will hold us in the comfort of his wings, God will hide us in the shadow of his wings, right? People go, aren't you a literalist? Don't you believe what the Bible says? And you go, well, yes, but does that mean that God's got wings? And that he's going to personally enfold them around you too in the front row, you guys? Is that what it means? Or if I don't believe that God's going to wrap his wings around me, do I disbelieve the Bible? Well, what if I told you that happened in a psalm and that it's a song of praise? And then when it says that God will enfold us in the comfort of his wings, what shadow of his wings, what it really means is that our God will care for us in the way that an eagle would care for its chicks. Now, that's a beautiful, true picture, but it's not literal. Are are you with me? And so what we need to do is we need to know what type of writing is it when we look at the Old Testament. So what type of writing is it? What does it clearly say? This is an amazing thing, but we've got to think about this. What is it actually telling us? What does it say? What did the author intend? They were writing a long time ago. Parts of this Old Testament were written 1,500 years before Jesus which would make them three and a half, 
thousand years old. We should be thinking, what did this text mean to the first people who received it? Are you with me? We should ask that question. Secondly, when we go, I don't know what this means, what we should do is we should expand our scope. If we've got a difficult paragraph here, maybe there's some more information before or after it. Or maybe it's in the chapter. Or maybe it's in the book. We have to look at the context to understand what's going on. Fifthly, we need to see what theological themes feature in this passage. What is it trying to tell us about God? And then sixthly, how does this point us to Jesus? Jesus is the focus, the pinnacle of the whole of the Bible. And so this passage, somehow or another, will be helping us to understand Jesus, and we need to think through how we see him in the text. Well, why go to all that trouble? Why do it? Why ask all those questions? Why do this whole thing? I'll tell you why. Because the God who is really there, the God who is really there, makes himself known. There could be no God in the universe, but the God who is actually there chooses to make himself known. He does it in two ways. He does it through creation, first and foremost. Have a listen to these beautiful words from Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. When I go out there and I, I photograph a sunrise, right? I see something of the glory and the majesty of God. I really do. It's true information. It causes my heart to soar. It makes me want to say thank you. That's God communicating. But it's not enough. That's not the only thing God says. God actually speaks to us through his word, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If I want to know God, it won't just be a night under the stars or a glorious sunrise. I actually have to meet him in here, in both parts of it, the Old Testament and the New. So all that's setting us up. What do we find in Genesis chapter 1? Let's do that first bit of looking carefully at the text and ask, what does it say? Well, our life groups uh, were given this text this week in the life groups, and they were, they were told, go underline things and circle them. I'm a colour guy, so I did lots of colour things. So uh, here's what I did trying to go through Genesis chapter 1 and underline all the bits that repeated and the themes and that sort of thing. It's a really helpful thing for us to do because it makes us stop and think about it again. What we're going to do is use my picture of the text in order to understand it a little bit better. What do we see when we look at Genesis chapter 1? Well, first of all, we see order. There are days, aren't there? Day 1, day 2, day 3, and so on. There's order. We also see patterns that repeat. We see patterns that repeat. We see that God says something and it happens. We see that God sees it and it was good. We see that animals are made according to their kinds. There are patterns all throughout this account. Thirdly, there's a high point in this account. The most important thing right at day six is what? What happens on day six? Human beings are created. That is the high point, the pinnacle, the climax of the whole thing. It's building up to day six. And we also see power. What we didn't read in uh, chapter two, if you have a little sneaky look, it's probably still on page one, is it? Um, if you have a look at um, Genesis chapter two, 
we see that the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God creates it. He speaks it into being and then he rests. God is powerful in this account. And then he rests. What type of writing is this? What's really interesting? It's not, it's not a narrative. It's, it's not really history. It has some of the cadence of poetry. It's a very unusual bit of writing. It's different from the next chapter in Genesis. It's different from the rest of the... It's a very unique chapter that speaks to us for a very unique purpose, to tell us about the creation of the world. And I want you to see that this account of the creation of the world is radical. Now, in the two-hour version of this talk, which I'm not doing now, thankfully, in the two-hour version of the talk, what I would do is I would talk you through some different accounts of the creation of the world. In, uh, in the Babylonian account, Enuma Elish, it's called, uh, the, the Egyptian account, a Greek account, and the Aboriginals. What, what do we find if we look at them about who is doing the creating? Well, in all of those accounts, we find that there are multiple spirits or gods doing stuff. Multiple spirits or gods are doing stuff in all of them. What do we find about their first act, the first thing that all of these gods do? Well, they procreate at some level. They, they either battle or they get together and make another thing, another spiritual entity. That's just common, except for in the um, Aboriginal uh, serpent thing where um, the, the, the rainbow serpent goes looking for its lost tribe. It goes wandering. Okay? But what about mankind? Where does mankind fit in this? If you go to Enuma Elish, go, go, go Google at home Babylonian creation myth, you'll have a ball. It's fantastic. About seven, no, six tablets in, you eventually get to humans. Humans are an afterthought in the Greek account. They're an afterthought in the Egyptian account. And they are an afterthought in the Babylonian account. All of them are peers to the Hebrews. It's, it's the same time period. And yet they all say, oh, human beings just kind of happen. In the Babylonian one, they have to kill a god, spill his blood, and then make some human beings kind of as a side product. What I want to tell you is the Hebrew account, the one we have in our Bible, is extraordinary. It's so different. It's so different from every other account of the creation. So what do we see when we look at it? What do we learn about creation here? We see that it doesn't start with a bang. Let the reader understand. It doesn't doesn't start with a bang. It actually starts with a voice. Have a look at verse 3. And God said, let there be what? Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. It starts with a voice, not a a voiceless bang. There is not a battle here. We see that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. There is not a battle. In all the other ones, we've got gods wrestling each other, killing each other, uh, betraying each other, marrying each other. I, I can't stress enough. Go look at them. They are a disaster. They are a chaotic disaster. Here, God battles no one. 
it is not bad. The, the chaos, the emptiness of the other stories is bad. It's scary. Here it's not. God exists and it is dark and peaceful. Not bad. We see that creation is not a byproduct. God didn't accidentally make it. The, the Dreamtime story has the serpent looking for the, um, the rest of his tribe and making the rest of the world by accident as he kind of travels across the nation. Creation here is not a byproduct, but the intentionality called forth by name by the living God. It also tells us that creation is not a God. Creation is not a God. Do you see, um, have a look at um, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from night. Can I just get you to notice, it's not until day four that the moon and the sun come to be. Did you see this? That's intriguing, isn't it? There's light prior and there's days prior. Anyway, I think it does cause us to think a little bit about the time scale if there's no moon and sun prior to day four. That, that's just a offer that for your thought. But here's the thing. God is so concerned to tell them that this is an avenue, a space for you to exist, that he doesn't even name the sun and the moon. Do you know that all the other people worship them? They don't even get a name here. They're greater and lesser lights created by God for a purpose. What do we learn about the animals here? What do we learn about the animals? The animals are not worthless. In fact, they are the beautiful creation of God, and they are given a purpose. They are told to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Animals are not worthless. They're valuable and they're precious in God's sight. They're not going to pass away either because they are the special responsibility of people who we're told in verse 28 will rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every other living creature that moves along the ground. And we see that they're not random. They are assigned to their different areas, sky, sea, and earth, according to their kinds. We also draw the conclusion, you're going to like this, that they are not gods. Now you think, that's cool, I wasn't thinking that before. Many, many ancient peoples worship animals. They're not gods, according to this account. What do we learn about mankind here? What do we learn about mankind in this account? Mankind are not monkeys. How do I know this? Because all of the animals were created on the land according to their kinds. They are, they are created according to their kinds. And then it is not until day six that human beings are created. They are not a mistake. Instead, we are told mankind is the only living thing to bear the image of God. God only invests his image his, the understanding of who he is and his nature and his character, he only puts it into one created thing, humanity. And it's expressing the image of God in male and female together. And it's expressing the imageness of God in the special responsibility that they are given. They're not morality makers. They are given responsibility to rule over the fish of the air, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to care for it and to steward it. They don't create reality. God gives it to them specifically. And clearly, human beings are not God. 
Well, what about this God? What do we learn about him? What do we learn about God here? God has no origin. Have a look. Uh, there's, a, there's a question you get in every Sunday school class, in every scripture class. Anyone ever taught one of these classes? You will always get this question. Does anyone know what the question is? Yes? Who made God? Have you had this question yourself? Who made God? This is a perfectly reasonable question because you've all been watching Lego Masters. Is that right? Some of you have. Anyway, Lego Masters, what we do is we get an idea in our head and we go into the room filled with Lego and we make stuff from the stuff that's there. God is God because he wasn't made. Who made God? The implicit idea is everything is made. What makes God God is that he is the only unmade one. Are you with me? That's what makes him God. So the question's right, and the answer is no one, and that's not disappointing, that marks him out uniquely as God. Are you with me? So it says in the beginning God, not somebody made God. Take them right here to Genesis chapter 1. There is no origin to God. There's also no obligation to God. He doesn't have to do this. If you have a look, the Spirit of God was hovering, it says in verse 2, over the waters. And I assume he could have done that for some time. I don't think he was running out of energy. No, there was no obligation. God freely chooses to speak creation into being as a gift for mankind, for his glory. There's no obligation for God. There's no opposition to God. God isn't in a, a titanic battle between a good spirit and a bad spirit, like as in Enuma Elish, where there's a giant belly of a creature that needs to be split open after other gods have been swallowed so that they can team up with another god and kill another god to make... There's no opposition. God freely speaks into the darkness and creates... And there is no evil because at every time we're told that it is good, 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 it is very good. God's creation, God's world shows us that he is not evil, but instead he is good and he is the only true God. I really can't emphasize enough for you guys how radical this is. One God, freely, without opposition, speaking into being intentionally creation and crowning it with humanity. It's extraordinary. It's only our familiarity with us that doesn't make us go, what? What does it mean if you hold to this view of the world? I want us to, to think about this. There are two choices before you. You can say that the world is filled with blind chance. It's all physics, formulas, and DNA. Or I want to suggest to you this account tells you that it is richly purposeful. It is an intentional outworking of the loving God who is truly there. But let, let's think for a second about what it looks like if you choose option A. Well, recently there was a, 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 there's a, a bit of a kerfuffle going on with uh, Israel Falau, and I, I won't speak to that because it will de derail me. But I saw, this, this, uh, I saw this Facebook post come up. I just want to read it to you because it's, it's kind of extraordinary. I'm shocked and disgusted. This was my mate's post and someone posted on it. I'm shocked and disgusted by this Facebook message. As an atheist, I believe that we're all created equal on this planet, no matter your race or sexual orientation. This opinion of yours is out of form and only makes me hate organized religion more. 
just want to let you know, this guy failed atheist class. Do you, know, do you pick up why? I believe we're all created equal. Are you with me? There is no equality in a godless physical universe. There is no equality. There's no morality to judge equality. There are only buckets of atoms and DNA. You can't argue that. And so this world, if you hang on to it, is a tragically senseless one. And I simply don't believe that anyone functionally lives the way that they say they do when they're writing smart posts. I don't believe it. In fact, I don't believe there are any true atheists. It's a bit rude, but I think there are no atheists. There are only overconfident agnostics. Does anyone know what an agnostic is? That's someone who's not sure about God. Not sure whether God's there or not. I reckon all atheists ultimately are just overconfident agnostics. They don't really know there's no God. They're just really angry, typically at the Christian God. Fascinating. So here's the thing. Let's have a crack at applying what we've learned. What if this is true? What if you go with option A and compare them to option B and think about real questions that you and I have? Well, let's have a go. When we ask in life, why did this happen? That that is a question that real people ask. Why did this happen? I want to tell you that the senseless universe has no answer for you. There can be no why in your atheist universe. None. You simply don't have a category for the question. We say, God alone knows. And it might break our hearts. We may, we may plead with him to reveal why, but he does know. There is someone who knows. There is purpose in the universe. What about when we ask, am I worthless? The chance-filled universe would say, are you strong? Propagate your DNA and get on with it. I hope that keeps you warm at night. That's all you've got. Instead, in the Christian worldview, we say God made you. You are the precious crowning creation of glory. You're precious precisely and only because you're created. What about how can you treat them that way? What if you were to say, you, you can't do that? My question would be, why? If you jettison God, then all I want to ask is, are you strong enough? Can you step on someone else and make sure that your DNA survives? Do it. Instead, we say each person bears the image of God. They're desperately precious. We can put down no one. Why should we care about the environment? Well, is your little puddle that you're living in okay? Are you, are you being fed? Get on with it. It doesn't matter. All, all that matters is passing on your DNA. It doesn't matter what's happening in the universe around you. Are you fed? Good. doesn't matter. No, nothing. Instead, for the Christian, we're told that God entrusted creation to our care, that we are to be stewards of the created order. It is our created obligation as humanity. Should we work 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Let's get rid of uh, weekend penalty rates and, and let's open shops all, all the time. 
Well, the, the godless universe would say, that's fine. More food for me means I'm stronger, means I get to step on you and, I, and my, my DNA goes forward and not you. Fantastic. What the created order says is God rested on the seventh day. It's actually stitched into our humanity to have a seven-day cycle. We should reflect that in our society if we can because it's good for us. Ah, out, mate, just escape and then get me back in if you can. Thank you. Oh, too far. Sorry. Thanks, Steve. Um, why do we feel useless when we're unemployed? I think this is a fascinating thing. Unemployment is actually a tragic outcome. Why? Why is it so tragic? It could be great. The universe has no answer. But God says that we were made for meaningful work, to be stewards, to care for and look after his creation. It matters. And then we have the existential question that we all have. Why do bad things happen? And the universe says there's no answer to that. And I say, come back next week. All right. Awesome. Okay, fantastic. There are answers only in this worldview. And it's a lie when our world will tell you that they can get rid of God and maintain morality. It just doesn't exist. It's a lie. And we need to expose it. But what about science? Okay, you've been talking about this Bible thing. What about science? Well, I want to show you three movements Um, A guy called Anselm of Canterbury said he had faith-seeking understanding. What he meant was, I'm a man of faith. I read my Bible, and the Bible says that the world is made by God. So what I do is I go looking for God's handiwork in the world. Faith-seeking understanding. Then you get to a guy like uh, Pierre-Simon Laplace, who was a uh, uh, physicist and a mathematician, and he worked out orbital mechanics, how all the bodies of, of the world go around. And he was talking with Napoleon. And Napoleon said, hey, this is a great paper. Um, I see you don't mention God in, in all this maths that you've done. And he says, I have no need for that hypothesis. He figured that his maths had ruled God out. And so we live in a world which has decided that our science has ruled God out. And I think the picture for our world is this picture. And the problem that we have, and I think this is, I love this quote from Pascal. So we're supposed to be totally sorted out because science has got it all sorted, right? But I love this quote. Have a listen. All of man's misfortunes come from one thing, which is not knowing how to sit quietly in a room. So you can understand mechanics and DNA and all the rest of it and have a deeply unsettled soul. A deeply unsettled soul. And so what I would tell you is that Genesis perfectly achieves God's goal for it. God intended to communicate order, purpose, the crown and glory of humanity. It does exactly what it was intended to do. Science describes without satisfying. Science describes without satisfying. No one holds their physics textbook at a funeral. Does it feel like science has all the answers? Is that what I'm viewing in the society around me? Oh, great. I see a really healthy, well-functioning society out there. Is that right? Desperately broken, isn't it? And what do we do? One does not simply know the meaning of life. (laughs) How does this connect with the New Testament? How do we get to the New Testament? We see it in the reading that Kathy brought for us. The God who is there makes himself known. How does he make himself known? Well, in John chapter 1, we see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we're told in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Who is the Word that was with God in the beginning? Jesus. 
Jesus is the Word who is with God in the beginning. We have a Father, we have a Son, we have a Holy Spirit, the Trinity right there at creation. This is our God. This is how he made the world. And so what should we do if this is true? What should we take home? I think we should wonder why it's not like that today. Come back next week. We'll explain everything. I think we should walk in the patterns that we can see in Genesis. We should esteem one another as precious. We should care for the world that God entrusted to us. We should seek to honour him by resting on the seventh. We should see him in all creation. And so we should worship the living God of creation for the goodness of his creation. I hope this series is really helpful for you. I want you to find yourself, but I want you to find yourself by finding yourself in his story. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you're the good and great God who is there. I pray that as we engage with your word today, that we might rejoice in the beauty, the freedom, the power, the glory of your creation. Father, help us treat as precious the things that you name as precious. Father, help us to live as people who find our story in your story. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.